Well, hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. This is the second week of Advent 2023 edition of No Nonsense Catholic. And according to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the Advent season is a time of preparation that directs our hearts and minds to Christ's second coming at the end of time and the anniversary of our Lord's birth on Christmas. Furthermore, participating fully in the Advent season can help us make the Christmas season more special. So without further ado, here are several ways to deepen your Advent celebration from a list that's currently trending on the Church Pop website. Their first uh, point, go to confession. Now, I would say it's best to visit our Lord in the Sacrament of Confession before Advent begins so that you can start with a clean slate for the season, so to speak. I went to confession the Saturday before first Sunday, so I just squeaked in, but confession is always a good idea. So if you didn't go before the first Sunday of Advent, it's not too late. By all means, go now. Number two, embrace some Advent traditions. Uh, the Advent wreath, the Advent calendar, just a couple that immediately come to mind. We bought an Advent calendar years ago for the family. It's a sort of a miniature chest of drawers made out of wood, and the children dubbed it the Advent box. And each of the little drawers has a date on it and uh, is just large enough to hold about six small pieces of candy, which was perfect for us. At some point, we also got an Advent calendar that hangs on the wall and is made of quilted fabric with a nativity scene on top and 24 numbered pockets arranged like the days on a regular calendar. And each pocket holds a little stuffed figure of Mary, Joseph, the angels and shepherds and wise men and so on. Star of Bethlehem, the baby Jesus, of course, which then we attach to the creche scene with Velcro one each day. And then there's more traditions uh, like these that you can share with your children and grandchildren, such as the, the Jesse tree, which we never did, but also the St. Andrew Novena, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And like everything Catholic, the various Advent traditions are full of symbolism. And, and they offer us regular reminders of the true meaning of Christmas at a time when so many of us are overwhelmed with worldly distractions. Number three, consider the works of mercy. Advent used to be called a little Lent because it was traditionally understood as a penitential season, hence the violet vestments and the no gloria at the mass. So the way Lent's a penitential preparation for Easter, Advent is a time for some penitential practices in preparation for Christmas, and even more in preparation for the second coming. So you should plan on participating in one or more corporal or spiritual works of mercy this season. And, and thinking about the works of mercy, I suspect our minds naturally turn to the parish or even the, the wider uh, community where opportunities are certainly never lacking. But you might want to think a little closer to home. St. Teresa of Calcutta offers some perspective on this. She said, Love begins at home, and it's not how much we do, but how much love we put into the action that we do. I want you to find the poor here, right in your own home first, and begin love there. And one way to do that is the next item on the church pop list, which is reconcile with others. Tis the season to practice forgiveness and compassion. And I've spoken often on this program about the need for and the power of forgiveness both seeking it and offering it to others. Advent's also an excellent opportunity to make reparation for your sins and the sins of others. And I, I hope we'll have time before the end of the show. I want to talk a bit about uh, making reparation and how that works. Number five, 
uh, and these have already passed, but there are two liturgical feasts of Our Lady that fall during Advent. And in fact, there's several feast days during the Advent season which have their own traditions, including St. Lucy's Day, which is today, the Feast of St. Nicholas that was back on the 6th. But the two Marian feasts of Advent are December 12th, which at the time of this recording was yesterday, and that's Our Lady of Guadalupe, which is certainly special to Catholics in this hemisphere because St. John Paul II named her the Empress of Latin America. And of course, she's the patron of, of Mexico as well. And, and speaking of the patronage of Our Lady, the first plenary council of Baltimore named the Immaculate Conception the patroness of the United States back in 1846. And her feast on December the 8th was a holy day of obligation. So I hope you made it to Mass uh, for that. Okay, the final Advent custom I want to talk about is the St. Andrew Christmas Novena. And this devotion has become an Advent tradition in my family, and it was one that I had not heard of before a few years ago. And I might begin by noting that this, this particular Novena is unlike any other, because for one thing, it's not nine days of prayer like a regular Novena, uh, nor do we pray for the intercession of St. Andrew, uh, despite the name. It's also known as the Christmas Novena or the Christmas Anticipation Prayer. Christmas Anticipation Prayer. I'm sorry, I've rented lips. Uh, but it's called the St. Andrew Christmas Novena because it begins just before Advent on November 30th, which is St. Andrew's Feast Day. Now, the origin of this devotion are unknown, but it dates back at least 100 years, which I mean, still makes it relatively new by Catholic standards. Some believe it began in Ireland, although I might point out that St. Andrew is the patron saint of Scotland. Uh, in any event, Catholics make this novena for 25 days in preparation for Christ's coming on Christmas. And like other Advent traditions, it helps us to prepare for Christ's birth throughout Advent and reminds us of the true meaning of Christmas and the second coming. So to make the St. Andrew Christmas Novena, you simply recite the following prayer 15 times per day from November 30th to November 24th inclusive. And here's the prayer. Hail and blessed be the hour and moment in which the Son of God was born of the most pure Virgin Mary at midnight in Bethlehem in piercing cold. In that hour, vouchsafe I beseech thee, O my God, to hear my prayer and grant my desires through the merits of our Savior Jesus Christ and of his blessed Mother. Amen. And that's repeated 15 times. And you can mention your request after the words, hear my prayer and grant my desires, um, my family, since there's a group of us, we pray the St. Andrew Novena uh, each night. We take a moment after the sign of the cross to just silently renew our own individual intentions and then pray the, the, the 15 requisite repetitions antiphonally. And at some point, my wife actually obtained a 15-bead St. Andrew Christmas Novena chaplet which is a thing, and it has a little medal on it, and it's not a medal of St. Andrew. Uh, it's actually a little representation of the nativity. And while there are no heavenly promises attached to this yearly practice, according to small t tradition, those who pray this novena faithfully will obtain their request. So just a few Advent traditions from the list on church pop. And speaking of church pop, uh, on their podcast, the Ta Catholic Talk Show, Ryan Scheel, Ryan Delacrosse, and Father Rich Pagano shared seven things about the season of Advent you may not know. And we've already shared in the last couple of weeks that Advent prepares us 
for the liturgical celebration of the Nativity and also for Christ's second coming. While they made the point that fasting and prayer and detachment from worldly distractions has really become an overlooked part of Advent. Father Pagano says that we should be, quote, living Advent urgently, now and always, to contemplate Christ's return, especially. Right, the emphasis being on the return of Christ in the second coming. And Father Pagano says that if you want to shift your whole practice of Advent, as he did, then learning that Advent, quote, used to be a time of penance and sacrifice associated with Christ coming back to judge the living and the dead is a great way to start. Of course, it's it's kind of hard to miss if you're paying attention to the, the Mass readings. But in any event, here are the seven things you may not have known about Advent. And I'm sure that you know most of them. We talked about most of them. Number one, Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, which means coming or arrival. Number two, the first Sunday of Advent is the beginning of the liturgical year. Number three, the Advent Mass readings focus on spiritual alertness and preparation. Uh, see, Advent used to be a 40-day season, originally starting on St. Martin's Day, and that's what it was called the Little Lent. Uh, and on, on the podcast, they also talked about St. Andrew's Novena, and uh, that as a special Advent practice. They also mentioned the O Antiphons that are sung in the Liturgy of the Hours during the final days of Advent, and we'll talk about them later, uh, including how some folks believe that there's a hidden message in the O Antiphons, so stay tuned for that. And uh, let's see, what else? The colors of Advent, the colors of the vestments and the altar cloths are significant. Violet, violet for the first, second, and fourth Sundays, and rose for Gaudete Sunday. Violet being a combination of blue and red, signifying penance, and, and rose being violet with the blue dialed down. See, in Western culture, blue uh, is associated with sorrow. So Gaudete Sunday is a reminder of the joy that awaits us in the celebration of Christmas. And so the blue color of the vestments is toned down to make them rose instead of violet. Now, the same thing happens on Litari Sunday and Lent, and for the same reason. Uh, these are only two days of the year when rose vestments, or I said, yeah, the, these two Sundays, the only days of the year when rose vestments may be worn. And I would mention that if your priest wears violet vestments on Gaudete Sunday and not rose, that's okay, because rose vestments, while most fitting, are not required. So that's just some of the, the customs and the traditions of Advent, and I certainly pray that your Advent is proving very fruitful, and that's no nonsense. Let's see, oh, over the weekend, I ran into an old friend of mine, Father Donald Calloway. They were having a, a gala dinner at the cathedral, and screening a new movie on the Eucharist, which features Father Calloway and Dr. Scott Hahn. And they were doing this, of course, to coincide with a national Eucharistic revival. And we got to talking, and, and I said that for the Eucharistic revival to really be a success, the bishops need to implement and enforce the reforms of the new rite that were contained in the 2004 liturgical instruction, Redemptionis Sacramentum which means sacrament of redemption. And I, may, I I shared some of my pet peeves regarding liturgical abuse, and he offered his opinions. And we'll talk 20. about that and more when we come back with lots uh, more no-nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Also, a special uh, question about the So stay with us.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. It was nice to see Father Calloway over the weekend and uh, speak to him about the Eucharistic revival. And it reminded me of a question I often get as a catechist, helping adult converts enter the church and adult Catholics to receive communion or confirmation. And and, and that is that, why is it that non-Catholic Christians may not receive the Eucharist in the Catholic Church? Uh, once a Catholic woman married to an evangelical Christian told me that her husband wouldn't go to Mass with her anymore because he could not receive communion. Because in his opinion, communion means love, and since he loves our Lord Jesus as much as the next guy, what's the big deal? What's the church's problem anyway? And the issue isn't uncommon, but it can be difficult to explain, not because the teaching of the church is unclear, because it's not, but, but rather because it's not really a rational objection. See, the fact that non-Catholics really love Jesus isn't the point. Because while communion may be considered a synonym for love, there's certainly more to it than that. And considering that we're meant to be encouraging a Eucharistic revival, I figure this is a good time to clear up any confusion you may have on this topic, or perhaps equip you to answer friends or family with the same issues. Especially since we're coming up on one of the two days in the year when a lot of Catholics, um, the only time they come to Mass, and, and since the whole debate about non-Catholics not receiving communion uh, seems to stem from a misunderstanding of what it means for a Catholic to worthily receive Holy Communion. Uh, I remember once speaking with, with another fellow, a non-Catholic, who claimed to believe in the real presence and said that the church is mean and uncharitable and unforgiving, etc., for not allowing him to receive Holy Communion at Mass. And I did my best to explain that when the priest holds up the host and says the body of Christ, the communicant's response, amen, is not merely an expression of belief in the real presence, but a full communion with the body of Christ, that is, the Catholic Church. That amen signifies agreement and acceptance of all the truths which the Catholic Church believes and teaches on the basis that they are revealed by God. To receive the Eucharist uh, you know, the Catholic Eucharist outside that relationship would not be unlike enjoying the marital embrace without the benefit of matrimony. I mean, both actions are, are intimate and physical as well as spiritual expressions of love, but they're legitimate and holy only within their proper context. And that's why the reception of the sacraments requires instruction. Those who desire baptism in the church must first be instructed and make a public profession of faith. Even in the case of infant baptism, the Catholic parents and godparents must be instructed as to their obligations and make a profession of faith on behalf of the child. Catholics must also be instructed before they make their first confession or before they receive first Holy Communion. And likewise, no Roman Catholic may receive confirmation or enter into matrimony without prior instruction. Now, to this end, St. Paul tells us in the Scripture that to receive the Holy Eucharist, one must discern the body to avoid judgment, and also to examine himself before receiving, because, quote, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. Therefore, a Catholic must be in a state of grace to approach the Blessed Sacrament. So a Catholic in a state of mortal sin must first receive sacramental absolution before presenting himself for communion. Because to receive Holy Communion in a state of mortal sin would be to commit another mortal sin. Now, 
I've met a number of non-Catholics who claim to believe in the real presence, but I've yet to meet one who claims to be without sin. But since they have not expressed no deep desire to go to confession, it's quite obvious that despite all claims to the contrary, their understanding of Holy Communion is not identical to the Catholic doctrine. In John 6, our Lord promised to give us his body and blood in the Eucharist. But many considered it a hard teaching, and the, the Bible says, walked no more with him. When he asked the apostles if they too would leave, St. Peter, as usual speaking on behalf of them all, replied, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. The apostles didn't understand Jesus' teaching, but they accepted it on the basis of his identity and their relationship with him. And a year later, their faith was rewarded at the Last Supper. At, at that sacred banquet, Jesus revealed that the Eucharist was to be a sacramental participation in his body and blood, that we really eat his flesh and drink his blood, but under the appearance of bread and wine. And our Lord's attitude in John 6 of letting the people, and that's even those who were his disciples, of letting them leave if they would not accept his teaching to mean literally consuming his body and blood, to let them leave, and even to ask the apostles if they would wanted to leave as well. See, that attitude demonstrates that the Holy Eucharist really is what he said it is, that it is a gift of love, but not for everyone, but only for those willing to believe and accept the words of eternal life. And that means, as he said before his ascension into heaven, to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. In other words, all the truths that the Holy Catholic Church believes and teaches. Next, who has the right to determine the, uh, the, the nuts and bolts, the rules and regulations regarding the reception of the sacraments? Well, Jesus made Peter the head of the church and gave to him and his successors the keys to the kingdom. He made the popes and the bishops custodians of the deposit of faith, delivered once and for all to the saints, as it says in Jude chapter 1. He promised to Peter individually and to the apostles as a college, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Holy communion is more than receiving the host. Communion means recognizing the authority of the church to govern the distribution of the sacraments. It means recognizing the Pope as the vicar of Christ on earth. It means accepting Mary as co-redemptrix. It means accepting everything the Catholic Church believes and teaches regarding faith and morals on the basis that those teachings are revealed by God. Jesus told the apostles, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. That question, to whom shall we go, is now properly addressed to Christ through his church. Now, my, uh, my interlocutor insisted that he should be allowed to receive communion because he does believe everything the church teaches. But I told him, if that were really true, you would not hesitate to come into full communion with the body of Christ, which is his holy Catholic church. So to sum up then, reception of holy communion is a gift, not a right. That's number one. Number two, the church is not withholding communion from anyone. All are welcome, as Pope Francis so often says, but let's complete the sentence. 
All are welcome to join the church and submit to her authority. Number three, even Catholics must be instructed before they may receive Holy Communion. Number four, one must be in a state of grace to worthily receive communion. If one is in a state of mortal sin, then sacramental absolution in confession is required to approach Holy Communion. And finally, if one does not like that the Church claims the right and duty to enforce these requirements, then in the words of my late mentor, Father Benjamin, don't talk to me about it. I don't make the rules. It was our Lord himself who commanded his followers to listen to the church. And finally, as usual, regarding any teaching of the church, there's nothing new here. For the woman with the disgruntled evangelical husband, I simply recommended that she keep up her good example, a la 1 Peter 3, 4, uh, 3 verses 1 through 4. Likewise, you wives should be subordinate to your husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by their wife's conduct when they observe your reverent and chaste behavior. Your adornment should not be an external one, but rather the hidden character of the heart, expressed in the imperishable beauty of a gentle and calm disposition, which is precious in the sight of God. And that's no nonsense. Okay, uh, by the way, for your information, if you haven't heard, starting in January, no-nonsense Catholic is going to undergo some changes. It will still be part of the VMPR lineup. It'll still be available, um, I understand, on the app and on the website, on the various podcast platforms, where I'm almost certain you are listening to it or watching it at this exact moment. Uh, but since it's a podcast and it's not going on broadcast Radio, I'm leaving behind the live radio format. So no more commercial breaks. The length of the episodes is going to be more flexible. And, and that way the new format will accommodate a, a shorter program or in some cases even a longer one if need be. The point is we won't have the time constraints of hard breaks and a set length for each episode. All right, at least that's the plan as it is now. Things happen so quickly and things keep changing uh, in this you know, whirlwind uh, world that we're in. Uh, that is at least the plan for now. Also, coming in 2024, VMPR will be offering online classes in what the church really teaches about topics like the Eucharist and evangelization and ecumenism, just to name a few things that many Catholics are really confused about, some whether they know it or not. So all that's coming in 2024, which unbelievably less than a month away. But uh, clearing up confusion that's why I've taught RCIA for so long. You know, I went to RCIA myself back in the 90s. I started teaching it uh, and being involved in, in teaching it uh, 18 years ago. I guess I've been, pardon me, the primary instructor in my parish for the better part of the last 15 years. And it's all about a desire. Uh, I, I feel I, a calling to to clear up confusion. and And that's also why we're going to be producing these video classes on the important teachings of the faith. You know, I, I mentioned Father Benjamin, God rest his soul. He was my RCIA instructor, my first mentor in the Catholic faith. Father Benjamin was, I mean, he was a cradle Catholic, but he fell away, got involved in, in Protestant Pentecostalism for a time, felt a calling to the pre, uh, priesthood. He had a very dramatic reversion, as we call it. He went to study in Rome. He 
graduated uh, summa cum laude from the Gregorian. He was actually ordained by St. John Paul himself. This was the guy that taught me the faith. And uh, like I say, he was my first mentor, as well as my RCIA instructor. And mentors, advisors, trusted counselors, as they're called in the Bible, are very important, important to advancement in the spiritual life. St. Bernard of Clairvaux said that uh, he who has himself for a spiritual director has a fool for a spiritual director because you need to have someone to to guide you and to listen to. And I don't know how many times over the years I've heard Catholic laity encouraged to get a spiritual advisor. Oh, you just have to have a spiritual advisor. But I've discovered that that's much easier said than done. Most often, some you know, you find a priest who really strikes you as like that. He'd be the perfect one. They're you know they they're already spread so thin that very often they don't have the time, and that's one of the reasons I regularly read from the Imitation of Christ, because it's filled with time-tested spiritual direction, as is the Holy Scriptures, and we'll be talking about that and much more when we return with more nonsense, no nonsense Catholic, right after these messages. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I mentioned that I follow personally the time-tested spiritual direction in the imitation of Christ. And I say time-tested because the principles of the spiritual life don't change because God doesn't change. Our Lord says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's why the Holy Bible and sacred tradition remain applicable to life today and always will. But while there's only one gospel, the church is called to minister to and to mentor all different types of people. And we're going to consider this in light of the passage of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, where he wrote, I have become all things to all people. Consider 1 Peter 5, 1-5, where St. Peter says, I now exhort the presbyters among you as a fellow presbyter myself and a witness to the sufferings of Christ and as one who has shared in the glory that is to be revealed. Be shepherds of the flock of God that has been entrusted to your care. Watch over it, not as a duty, but willingly in accord with the will of God, not for sordid gain, but because you are eager to do so. Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. Then, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that never fades away. In the same way, you who are younger must be submissive to those who are older, and all of you should clothe yourselves with humility in your relationships with one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, 1 Peter is one of the Catholic letters of the New Testament, so-called because they're not addressed to a a particular community or a particular individual, but to the whole church. And this particular exhortation of St. Peter is directed to the presbyters of the church. Presbyter comes from the Greek word presbyteros, and literally means elder. But it has a special scriptural meaning. In the Bible, the church's hierarchy is denoted by three terms. Episcopos, Presbyteros, and Diakonos. 
Episcopos literally means overseer, and it's the root word of the English words episcopal and episcopate. But episcopos is received into English as bishop. Presbyteros literally means elder, but it is received into English as presbyter or priest. Diakonos literally means servant, but as you've already guessed, in English it's deacon. The Church of the New Testament, therefore, has bishops, priests, and deacons. And in 1 Peter 5, St. Peter is encouraging the priests of the church to be true shepherds of the flock that has been entrusted to your care, by watching over them not as a duty, but willingly, even eagerly, in accord with the will of God. He tells them especially not to look for any gain or to lord it over those in their charge. Rather, he says, be examples to the flock. That way, when the chief shepherd appears, that is, when Jesus returns, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. In the same way, the younger priests must be submissive to those who are older. And we'll see an example of that when we look at St. Paul's words to Titus in in the letter that bears that name. But finally, St. Peter says, all of you should clothe yourselves with humility in your relationships with one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And St. Peter is exhibiting that very humility with this exhortation. Because you notice he doesn't address the priests of the church uh, as the prince of the apostles or the highest bishop of the episcopate, but simply as a fellow priest. And in light of these passages, we're going to look at St. Paul's instructions to Titus in the epistle of the same name, as I just mentioned. Titus was a a Gentile convert whom Paul made a bishop, and uh, not only that, but his personal delegate on the island of Crete. And Paul understood that for bishops to be effective, they need to understand and relate to all types of people. And reading St. Paul's letter, we, we get the sense that he was genuinely concerned for Titus, as well as for his flock, that he was trying to prepare Titus for different scenarios he was likely to encounter down the road, and, and that includes mentoring others. St. Paul was a spiritual mentor for Titus and Timothy and many others that we read about in the scriptures. And we understand that spiritual mentors are an invaluable part of God's plan for us, and that at certain times in our lives, you and I will not only benefit from spiritual mentoring, but will likely be called upon to be spiritual mentors ourselves. And a good mentor has, has the following four characteristics. A good mentor believes in people. A good mentor encourages people. He teaches people. He shows others how to grow in love for Christ and his church. And this, by the way, is precisely the mission of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And there are many passages of Scripture that talk about mentoring. One of the most famous is Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And in Titus chapter 2, Paul gave the following instructions to Titus to help him minister to the different types of people he would encounter. First, older men. His instructions for them were as follows. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. He said, exhort the older women to be reverent in their behavior, not to be slanderous or slaves of drink, and eager to teach what is good. And he says they are to teach and encourage younger women. Younger women, he says, are to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled and chaste, 
to be diligent homemakers, to be agreeable, and to respect the authority of their husbands, so that the word of God may not be derided. And then St. Paul did not forget young men either. His instructions to Titus for them were, exhort the younger men to exercise self-control. Show yourself to them in all respects as a model of good works, while in your teaching exhibit integrity and dignity and a soundness of speech that cannot be criticized. Then any opponent will be put to shame when he can find nothing evil to say about us. Now, there's, a, there's some advice that uh, there's some bishops that I know could really benefit from uh, uh, taking some time to think about what uh, St. Paul said to Titus. But understanding that different groups of people have different needs, that they play different roles in, in the family, in society, and in the church, that's an important part of any effective ministry. And St. Paul understood this, and he trained the younger Titus on how to be effective in his ministry as bishop. But while each group has unique characteristics and needs, there's one common thread between them all. Love. Love for God and love for each other. And this teaches us that no matter who we are mentoring or ministering to, friends, a spouse, children, other family members, showing them the love of Christ is always the most important thing to do. So St. Paul's teachings are not just for bishops but something that all of us can learn from. Whether we are the one teaching or the one being taught, it is essential that we understand that our intentions must be first and foremost giving glory to God and the salvation of souls. And I'll leave you, uh, or leave this topic with um, the passage from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. To the Jews, I became like a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, although I myself am not under the law, in order to win over those under the law. To those outside the law, I became like one outside the law, although I am not outside the law of God, but am subject to the law of Christ, in order to win over those outside the law. To the weak, I have become weak in order to win over the weak. I have become all things to all so that by every possible means, I might save some. And that's no nonsense. All right, we began the show today by talking about some of the beautiful liturgical traditions of Advent, and I'd like to speak about one now that, called the O Antiphons. And if you pray the Liturgy of the Hours, as I do, then you're, you pray these every year. But the first question is, what is an antiphon? Antiphons are short responses that are used in liturgies. Um, according to the U.S. Bishop's website, the Roman Church has been singing the O antiphons since at least the 8th century. They are, from, or they are the antiphons that accompany the Magnificat Canticle of Evening Prayer, uh, a.k.a. Vespers, in the Liturgy of the Hours, from December 17th through the 23rd. So there's seven. They are a magnificent theology that uses ancient biblical imagery, hey, there I am, drawn from the messianic hopes of the Old Testament to proclaim the coming of Christ as the fulfillment not only of Old Testament hopes, but our present hopes as well. Their repeated use of the imperative come embodies the longing of all for the divine Messiah. Right, thus far the words of 
the U.S. bishops. The O antiphons have been used for more than a millennium as meditations to help people prepare for the coming of Christ. And they were traditionally the preeminent uh, Advent ritual of the church. The seven verses of the popular hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is a paraphrase of the seven O antiphons. And they represent a magnificent summary of the identity of Christ. The O antiphons were set to Gregorian chant in the Middle Ages, uh, early in the Middle Ages, as I'm assuming part of the Gregorian reform from where we get Gregorian chant. And they, of course, still make a useful and fruitful meditation for us as we approach the coming of our Lord in the celebration of Christmas and in preparation for the second coming. The seven titles of Christ in the O Antiphons prepare us for his liturgical arrival at Christmas so that we can be like the angels and shepherds that first adored him at the manger. And you can find them very easily online, uh, both in Latin and English, and pray them each day from the 17th to the 24th, you know, one a day, whether you, whether you play the Liturgy of the Hours or not. And so here they are in order with the English translation taken from the U.S. Bishop's website. O, this is starting on December 17th, O Sapientia, O wisdom of our God Most High, guiding creation with power and love, come to teach us the path of knowledge. Okay, I hear the music, so we'll pick up with the O antiphons when we return. And also we're going to talk about... Um, uh, making reparation and what that entails. Okay, all that and more when we return right after this. All right, talking about the O antiphons uh, recited in the Liturgy of the Hours from the 17th to the 24th of December, and we'll start again on December 17th, is O Sapientia, O Wisdom of our God Most High, guiding creation with power and love, come to teach us the path of knowledge. December 18th is O Adonai, O Lord and Ruler of the House of Israel, giver of the law to Moses on Sinai, come to rescue us with your mighty power. December 19th is O Radix Yesi, O root of Jesse's stem, sign of God's love for all his people, come to save us without delay. December 20th, that's my birthday. And that'll be the, I, the last show in this format if things uh, go the way they're planned. December 20th is O Clavis David, O key of David, opening the gates of God's eternal kingdom, come and free the prisoners of darkness. December 21st, O Oriens, O radiant dawn, Splendor of eternal light, son of justice, come and shine on those who dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death. December 22nd is O Rex Gentium. O king of all nations and keystone of the church, come and save man whom you formed from the dust. And then December 23rd, O Emmanuel. O Emmanuel, our king and giver of law, come to save us, Lord our God. Those are the O antiphons, and I mentioned that some folks have cooked up a theory about a secret message hidden in the O antiphons, and, <laughs> and just for your edification, here's how it works. First, you need to take the first letter of the first word that is after the O 
of the first line of each of the antiphons in Latin. So sapientia, Adonai, Radix, Clavis, Oriens, Rex, and Emmanuel. That gives us the letters S-A-R-C-O-R-E. Okay, so nothing there. But read those letters from right to left. Okay, read that backwards, and you get E-R-O-C-R-A-S, which you can divide into the words Erocras, which is a Latin phrase meaning I come tomorrow. And of course, once the seven-day cycle of the O Antiphons is completed, the next day is Christmas, the day Jesus comes. See, so I'll come tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. I, you know, personally, I think this is some secret Bible code level nonsense, but, but there it is. A, a 2014 article on Church Pop by Peter Darcy said, the church provides the O Antiphons at the end of Advent so that when he arrives, we can be like the worshiping angels and shepherds on that first silent night to sing the praises of the newborn king of our hearts. I'll give the last word on this to the prophet Isaiah, from whom we derive these antiphons. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. And that's no nonsense. All right. We've spoken often on this program, and uh, I've spoken about it with Terry Barber when I've been, you know, guest host on the Terry and Jesse show. I know that they talk about it. I think Terry ends the program every day by reminding us that Our Lady of Fatima said that their soul's going to hell because they have no one to make reparation for them, right, to pray and make sacrifices. What is reparation? How do you make reparation? I think, that, you know, it's an important question. I don't know that I've ever... Uh, spent any you know, time on the actual nuts and bolts, and somebody asked me about it, so here it is. To make reparation means to make amends or to seek to repair the harm caused by your actions. Uh, it involves acknowledging and taking responsibility for the wrongs committed and making efforts to make things right. Catechism, paragraph 1459, teaches that reparation is an important aspect of seeking forgiveness and reconciling with God and others. That's why I mentioned it uh, in our uh, list of Advent uh, customs, right? Um, reconciliation. When we sin, we not only offend God, we also harm the relationships that we have with others, uh, you know, with our neighbors. So reparation involves both interior and exterior actions. Internally, it requires the, you know, sincere contrition, a firm resolution to avoid sin in the future. Externally, it might involve acts of restitution or, you know, making apologies, seeking forgiveness, performing acts of charity or service, all these things to repair the damage that's been caused. And, and reparation, though, like I said, is not just about making things right with others. It's about restoring our relationship with God. And through acts of reparation, we express our sorrow for our sins and seek to make up for the offenses committed against God's love and goodness. So through reparation, we seek to repair the brokenness caused by sin, and to participate in the work of redemption. See, it's important to note that while reparation is a necessary response to sin, it doesn't earn forgiveness or salvation. Our salvation ultimately is a gift from God. It's received through faith and the grace of Jesus Christ. However, making reparation is a tangible expression of our repentance and a response to God's call to live a life of righteousness and love. Hence, St. Paul, work out your salvation, he says in fear and trembling. So making reparation 
uh, means acknowledging your wrongdoing, taking responsibility for our actions, seeking to repair the harm caused by our sins, and involves both internal contrition and external actions to reconcile ourselves with God and neighbor. But the question is, like what like Terry Barber says at the end of his program, uh, that we need to make sacrifices and pray for for sinners. See, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it's possible not only to make reparation for our own sins, but to make reparation for the sins of others. Again, through prayer and penance and acts of charity, and Advent's a perfect time for this. Now, obviously, we can't directly atone for the sins committed by others. That's between them and God. But we can offer our prayers and sacrifices to God, asking for his mercy and grace to be poured out upon them. See, by uniting our sufferings and our acts of reparation with the sacrifice of Christ, we participate in his redemptive work. Our prayers and acts of reparation can have a positive effect on the conversion and the salvation of others. And through our intercession and our offering, we cooperate with God's grace in bringing healing and reconciliation to those who have sinned. Now, it's important to note that making reparation for the sins of others doesn't absolve them of their personal responsibility or replace their need for individual repentance. But each person, you know, is accountable for their own actions, must seek their forgiveness and reconciliation with God. But in summary, while we cannot directly atone for the sins of others, we can offer prayers and penances and acts of charity on their behalf. And through our participation in Christ's redemptive work, our reparation can have a positive impact on the conversion and the salvation of others. And there's something that's related to that, which we've also talked about recently. I, you know, uh, for example, when I underwent my recent surgery, and that's redemptive suffering. Redemptive suffering refers to the belief that our own sufferings, yours and mine, when united with the sufferings of Christ, can have a salvific and redemptive value. It's the understanding that our sufferings, when offered to God with faith and love, can contribute to the redemption and salvation not only of ourselves, but others. Once again, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, this time paragraph 16, or 618, teaches that Christ's suffering on the cross was the ultimate act of redemption. And through his suffering, he opened the way to eternal life. His sacrifice was sufficient to redeem all mankind. However, as baptized members of his body, we are called to participate in his redemptive work by offering our own sufferings in union with his. This is the meaning of Colossians 1.24, where St. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ on behalf of his body, which is the church. In other words, by uniting our sufferings with Christ, we enter into a profound spiritual union with him. And our sufferings take on a new meaning and purpose and become a source of grace and a means of participating in the saving work of Christ. Through redemptive suffering, we can offer our pain, our hardships, our difficulties for the conversion of sinners, for the salvation of souls, and, and for the building up of the church. Again, important to note, redemptive suffering doesn't mean seeking out suffering. It doesn't mean glorifying in suffering for its own sake. It's about embracing the sufferings that come our way and offering them to God, trusting in his providence and in his redemptive power. 
So in summary then, redemptive suffering is the belief that our own sufferings, when united with the sufferings of Christ, have or can have a salvific and redemptive value. We must not we must not squander our suffering. We must not waste our suffering by you know uh, by kicking against the goad, by railing against God, by by complaining about our circumstances, but rather by offering that, by embracing that suffering and offering it along with the suffering of Christ. And in that way, offering our sufferings to God with faith and love, we participate in the redemptive work of Christ and contribute to the salvation of ourselves primarily and of others. And that is no nonsense. All right, well, we've come to the close of another episode of No Nonsense Catholic. I've blessed that you were able to join me here whenever you happen to be listening to this episode of uh, NNC. And I want to remind you that uh, we will be on uh, live again next Wednesday on the 20th, which is uh, my birthday. I'm not I'm not uh, saying that because I expect uh, Christmas cards or, or birthday cards or presents or anything, but uh, uh, it's just significant to me that that will be the last program that we do in this format. And that's assuming that things go the way they are. They, you know, they, they uh, have asked me I'm, I, I'm to continue having this program be part of the VMPR lineup. I don't exactly know how it's going to work, but it is my hope to, since um, the vast majority of my listeners are listening on podcast platforms or watching the videos on Rumble uh, or on the VMPR website uh, and not over the radio, that I will be able to um, treat this like a podcast and not like a radio show and not have to stop for commercials and not have the hard breaks and so forth, which for me is important because once when I get on a roll, it's hard for me to stop and then, and then start again. So, um, uh, embracing that new technology and the, and the new direction in which things seem to be going, uh, for 2024. Also this coming year, January, 2024, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is going to be offering online classes. I'm sure that'll be for a donation. And we'll talk about that more in the weeks ahead. And in the meantime, I just want to thank you so much for listening today, for your past listenership, for your listenership going forward. Until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.